Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of AML.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Let's kick things off with Brian Levitt, Senior Investment Strategist at Oppenheimer Funds. He joins us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. It's great to have you. Thank you. Good morning. With us. So much here that we could, we could talk about. Let's see where to start. Let's start with Jobs Day tomorrow. Fascinating interview with James Corman of Morgan Stanley yesterday uh, on Bloomberg Television. Our colleague Tom McKenzie in, in Beijing speaking with, with him. And he said, quote, the dirty little secret here is the U.S. economy is doing just fine. Uh, from where you sit, when you look at the U.S. economy, is it just fine? It is just fine. And it's been just fine for a long period of time now. I think by now, investors would have hoped for better than just fine. And I think, uh, you know, the U.S. election, when we heard candidate Trump speak on the campaign trail, he would talk of three, four, five percent GDP growth. And, you know, in the aftermath of the election, there was hopes for tax cuts, fiscal stimulus and, and the like. And, you know, again, three, four, five percent GDP growth. The reality is in the first quarter, the U.S. grew at something like one point two percent on an annualized basis. And in general, we've been saying it's a two percent economy. And, you know, a two percent economy has been quite good for equities. But, for workers, um, most people that want jobs generally can find them. Are, there, are their wages going up? Not significantly. So just fine, David, I think is right. You're right that the Fed is in an, uh, a, a predicament. It's an interesting predicament here going into the next FOMC meeting in, in June. What are policymakers wrestling with and, and how do you think that's going to come out? So – there's the there's a psyche there was the psyche of zero percent there's sort of now the psyche the psyche of one percent the the reality is at some point in the future the United States is going to have an economic cycle again and so the Fed would like to have uh, room to reduce rates for the next recession re next economic cycle here's the rub the problem is the Fed's looking at this and saying an unemployment rate below five percent wages growing two two and a half percent credit spreads are tight the dollars weaker. You know, we're not seeing big capital outflows from the emerging markets. So why not now? When else can we do it? The, the problem is that the long-term bond market is not latching on to any type of reflation trade. So 2.2% on a 10-year treasury is consistent with a 2% real GDP economy. And there's not that many times you can raise rates further without further flattening the yield curve or maybe, God forbid, inverting the yield curve, which would be a harbinger of worse things to come. So that's the rub. As you listen to the, the chorus of committee members, uh, Robert Kaplan talking to Tom yesterday at the Council on Foreign Relations, Lael Brannard speaking uh, earlier this week, the most dovish of the doves. Uh, is there consensus forming here? Do, do you think you, you have a good sense from what they've been saying of, of what the Fed's going to do when it comes to the balance sheet or when it comes to the next rate increase? Well, I don't think we see consensus. If you look at the Fed dot yeah. plot for uh, mid-2018, it's, it's a huge band. And the median's probably around 
So unless you get the long-term bond yields up with either some stimulus or heightened inflation expectations, it's going to be hard to get Fed funds to 2%, especially when you're trying to scale down a $4 trillion balance sheet. Now, I don't think that the four, you know, in early on, it was what's going to happen when they have to sell all these mortgages and treasuries yeah. into the market, and that's going to be massively disruptive. That's not going to happen. Not at, you know, 2% inflation or 1.5% inflation. What's going to happen is those securities are going to mature and the Fed's not going to reinvest principal. We've never really done that before. Yeah. The history books didn't teach this. So yeah. it's, it's unprecedented. So I think the Fed's going to be cautious on Fed funds, more dovish than expected as they scale back mm -hmm. the balance sheet. Uh, Brian Levitt with us with Oppenheimer. I, you know, I've been, you and I have had fun this morning uh, talking about the CFA exam. Good morning to all of you uh, taking the, the, what is it, like 4 million people take the exam now? What, what percent worldwide? has? 12%. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Anyways, you know, we'll talk a lot about this as we go into Jobs Day tomorrow and the CFA exams on Saturday as well. One of the great fundamentals here of those exams is linking equity markets to bond markets. The fact is, as you mentioned, it's not in the textbooks. You can't do that now because you don't know where the risk-free rate is. So what do your portfolio managers do? Well, I think it's I think simplistically we can still look at the earnings yield of the broad market and compare it to a 10-year treasury rate. Now, you know, people like to look at price over earnings. You flip that over, earnings over price. I don't have the exact numbers, but say the S&P 500's at 24, 2500, earnings are around 110. We call that a 5% earnings yield give or take for those that yeah. can do the math in their heads. I like that more than 2.2% on a treasury yield. So it's unlikely that a bull market in equities is going to end with stocks being this cheap to bonds. Stocks historically are a better asset class than bonds. I think over any five-year period, stocks outperform bonds about 85% of the time. So um, I, I, I think we can still look at that. You know, Short of having a risk-free rate, you can consider. Some might say the 10-year rate is too low. Um, it's been overbought. I would say compare it to the nominal growth rate of the economy. Even at 2% real yield, even if you can get 1.5%, uh, 2% real growth, even if you can get 1.5%, 2% inflation, stocks are still cheap to nominal growth in this country. Do you see catalysts on the horizon, things that could kickstart? The economy change the the curve do do, do something different. Or, I mean, how how pessimistic are you about uh, seeing a catalyst in the near term? I think it's increasingly unlikely. Okay, I, I think it's you know tax reform is difficult even in the best political environments. Um, even when Reagan got tax reform two years after his uh, historic electoral college landslide. There were an awful num – there were a large number of Democrats that were involved in that tax reform, including people like Bill Bradley. So, you know, these things are difficult. They're hard to do. And we're dealing with the realities of governing right now. And those realities never go away, even with single-party rule. How do you deal with the, the realities of just figuring out what's going on or not going on in, in Washington uh, DC. We were talking with uh, Stan Collender, who's an expert on the federal budget yesterday, and he was up in here in New York meeting with clients, and he said he's just astounded by the disconnect between New York and Washington and uh, you know how there has been so much optimism that things are going to happen in Washington when he's pessimistic that they that anything's going to happen. Uh, how do you deal with that? How do you keep apprised of what's going on? How do you how do you 
develop the calculus to understand what's going on. Well, the first thing I said, and, and I think I've said this on this program before, is yeah. that hating the government is not an investment strategy. Right. So I said that during the Obama administration. I'm now saying that during the Trump administration. The reality is, if you go back to the Kennedy administration, markets actually do better when the president's approval rating is below 50. So we don't really? have to... That is true. I did not know that. We don't have to like the president for the markets to go up. Did you take that from CFA level three? <laughs> it's on. <laughs> really, I did not know that. That's amazing. It is on the test. Yeah. And my colleague on the other side of the glass is studying right now. So, yeah. so Are you really studying in there? We have a bulletproof glass yeah. between us. True. They sometimes fire at us, and you know, Ken Felly will get the, the, get the submachine gun. Can we drop his name, Tom? Please. Drew Thornton on the other Drew? side of the glass. Oh, he is right. studying for the Level CFA. four derivatives? <laughs> How about forward market foreign exchange? Okay. So, you know, I, I think for investors, for investors that have a, a broad, long-term, consistent investment plan, they should not get caught up too much yeah. in the political theater taking place in D.C. Investors trying to figure out it from an earnings perspective, we should be looking from the bottom up. We should not be expecting broad stimulus of the fiscal kind that we haven't seen probably since 2009 to be the driver of earnings going forward. Just return to the Fed here quickly and, and the balance sheet. As they wind that down, do you think it's going to happen fairly seamlessly? Do you think that they are going to communicate adequately about what's going on? What's your, what's your, what are your expectations about how it's going to happen? Well, again, it's unprecedented, but yeah. my instinct is that they are going yeah. to be able to manage this, that it is going to be a very prolonged, drawn-out process, gradual, slow, yeah. of allowing security. And, and critically, I couldn't get an answer from Robert Kaplan on this, the how long part. I wasn't looking for, like, you know, the third week of August. No. Year. <laughs> We're looking but at decades. <laughs> I, I'm with you. I mean, law, I don't think the, the market and the zeitgeist understands this isn't about two or three years. This is not about two or three years. Yeah. We, we've got it. This is a Long, there's, and he made clear this is I love his phrase, Brian, managing the choreography. Right. Total exactly. original Kaplan idea. Exactly. I love it. And, exactly. But you're seriously, you're at decades. I'm at decades, yeah. I yeah. mean, you think yeah. of the maturity of the securities on the on the balance sheet. Brian Levitt, thank you so much. And congratulations on your support of New Jersey Institute of Technology. Thank you. I know you're on some board out there. They're one of our great <laughs> sponsors, and uh, they've really, really helped us um, along the way with our STEM report. So I can make a, a, a joke, folks, about getting wonky, which we're going to do here. But it's unfortunately no joke because everyone listening is part of the – Game of Thrones-like religion of dividend growth. Brian Levitt with us with Oppenheimer Fun. Dividend growth is the bet on the future dividend, overwhelming yield issues and overwhelming valuation issues. How far out are we buying that growth? Are we out one year? Are we out two years? When I buy a quality stock, like something in an Oppenheimer Fund's portfolio, international or not, are we so desperate that we're buying year five dividend growth? <laughs> I, I think I think we are, um, and I think that you know investors continue to search work for yield wherever they could find it, and they found a little bit of a comeuppance with that uh, when interest rates rose last summer and were climbing um, all the way through the end of the year. Now, of course, this year we've seen rates come down, and dividend strategies have done quite fine. My my view on dividend strategies, on low volatility strategies, that if we're in this slow economic environment, um, those types of strategies can do fine. My concern is if investors don't right-size that position accordingly, they should have some caution. Um, you know, the downside could be worse at some point than the upside is from here. 
Let's look at Europe just a little bit here. We're focusing a lot on the, the transatlantic relationship, American leadership in the world in light of what we expect to hear today uh, from the president of the Rose Garden on the Paris uh, Agreement. What's your attitude generally toward investing in Europe uh, at this point? What's attractive to you? Uh, in Europe. It's actually a great part of the economic cycle in Europe in which to invest. Investors have been asking me for years, is, is Europe two years behind the United States? And, and presumably that meant with regards to the financial markets. If you look at it from a credit cycle perspective, given all the austerity uh, forced on the peripheral countries, rate hikes in 2011, Europe is probably more like six, seven, eight years behind the United States with regards to their credit cycle. We're only first seeing credit growth in 2016 and 2017. So that's good news. David, the, uh, this was supposed to be the make-or-break year yeah. for the European Union, the common currency, and one by one, the elections have gone in favor of the pro-Europe candidate, and we've seen that in Austria and the Netherlands, um, in France, and, and less in favor of the Eurosceptics. So for those investors that didn't want to be positioned because of the politics, they've missed out on what's been a, a, a good economic recovery in Europe. In fact, yeah. European growth in the first quarter better than U.S. growth. And this is a typical Oppenheimer Fund's question, a broader, bigger view of management. Are they becoming more Anglo-American? They, they are. And I mean, there's a lot of great companies in Europe um, doing a lot of great things, involved in a lot of industries where um, they may be the one or two largest players within that industry. So, you know, for investors uh, that didn't want to be there because of politics, because of the strong dollar, that has now all abated. And, you know, we, we aspire as consumers to a lot of the products that the Europeans provide, um, but as investors, we tend to shun it. And, and I don't think that that's an appropriate investment strategy. Uh, that home bias mm -hmm. is probably too persistent in the U.S. Are the politics entirely peripheral now uh, in Europe? Are you able to look at valuations in a vacuum or, or uh, are you still concerned about what might happen in Italy, say, or what might happen in two weeks Two weeks, not even two weeks, a week's time in the UK. Well, I, I like political uncertainty from the sense that um, markets like to climb a wall of worry. Mm -hmm. when, when we get to uh, absolute clarity on politics and policy, that's probably when we should be concerned about markets. Now, the UK is a little bit of a different story than the continent. If, if we were to stick to the continent, valuations, if you were to look at it um, on, a, on a trailing 12-month earning basis, or is not <clears> – you wouldn't say <throat> this is – screaming attractive but what you have to realize is that the de that denominator has not improved in a large in a number of years broadly and we're well, seeing that now cyclically in europe brian levitt thank you so much with oppenheimer funds joining us in europe andrew balls uh, right now with pimco uh, an important and timely conversation. Andrew, I, 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 we should note that your brother has been involved in United Kingdom politics. I don't want to step on family territory. What is your reaction to what we've seen in this abrupt change in the election in the United Kingdom? Could you give us an observation on that? Yes, great. Uh, thanks for having me uh, today. So, um, so you you started off with a very um, big lead for the Conservatives. It's um, it's it's shrunk a lot. Uh, I think that's what yeah. you would have um, expected. Um, and um, the UK pollsters have have done a pretty poor job um, over yeah. time. Um, so I think the baseline is um, is um, that we're going to have a, a Conservative government um, 
and that Theresa May will increase the um, her, her majority, right. which is what we expected going into this. But that said, there's uncertainty in the polls, and you know the campaign has not gone gone very well. Yeah. They had a major commitment in their manifesto. They reversed it a week later. I don't think that's ever happened before. So I think, in spite of a, what's not been a great campaign, you know, our expectation would be conservative government increased majority. But there's a lot of uncertainty. But you went right where I knew you'd go, which is, and you can help us with this. You've got the ability on this. How do you poll in a parliamentary system? I mean, it's not like polling in the United States, is it? No. And um, the, the other thing in the UK is um, traditionally conservative voters uh, don't want to say um, they vote conservative uh, in 100 percent of the cases. So the, the pollsters have to make adjustments for what they call shy um, conservatives. Uh, there was a uh, an effort by one of the pollsters um, uh, published um, this week where they went constituency, constituency, uh, huge um, errors around it. But what they do is they look at what happened last time uh, and they adjust based upon the national polls for each um, seat. But they did a they did a lousy job um, um, last time around. So from our perspective, yeah. we don't have a lot of risk riding on this, but um, yeah. from our perspective, um, the most likely thing is um, um, conservative majority, um, and um, um, that's what we are assuming. But it'd be interesting if you had a hung parliament. There's the Brexit recommendation, uh, the Brexit negotiations um, ready to start. Ending up with right. a hung parliament, um, trouble forming a government would be a pretty awful way to start these Brexit negotiations. Andrew Bros, thank you for doing that. The general counsel of PIMCO just aged. Uh, David Gura, <laughs> jump in here and get Mr. Balls out of trouble. Yeah, you're out with your new global secular outlook. Let me just ask you how as an investor you're watching what's unfolding uh, in the UK. And we were talking earlier about the degree to which politics is perhaps uh, obfuscating the health of the, the European economy. Just give us your, your outlook on, on where Europe's headed here in the next six to 12 months. So the UK, so start with the UK, um, the, it looks okay. Uh, we slow a little bit, um, but overall, since the Brexit referendum a year ago, uh, it, it looks it looks pretty good. You've got a, you've got a lot of uncertainty um, uh, in the in the outlook. Um, um, we, you know, the level of interest rates looks too low here compared with the US. Um, um, so I think over time, we should see higher rates in the UK. You know, I want to get paid more to own UK uh, interest rate risk than I do uh, in the US. Um, um, but we haven't we haven't seen Brexit before, obviously, and so uh, these negotiations uh, they could have a big impact on on confidence. But so far it's been okay. On the European side, you know, by European very low standards, um, things are going quite well. Yeah. Um, um, the um, the eurozone has been growing above above its potential for a couple of years. We expect that to um, continue. Um, uh, they're, they've been a long way behind the U.S. in this recovery, so this is what should be happening. Um, but um, mm -hmm. you know, um, my former colleague, um, colleague Paul McCulley, used to say, you know, in Europe there's kind of gnashing at teeth at one percent and Nirvana at two percent. We're we're a bit closer to two percent at the moment. Well, it is good fortune to have Andrew Balls with us, of course, with uh, Pacific Investment Management Company, Pimco and their chief investment officer, Global Fixed Income. Let me ask you the basic question, uh, Andrew, as you will uh, give last rights to CFA test takers at PIMCO here in the coming two days. Where's the risk-free rate right now? Do you have a clue? Where is the risk-free rate? Uh, so the risk-free rate is um, in the U.S. You know, I'd look at... Um, uh, U.S. real rates or U.S. Um, nominal rates, and uh, we've just had our our annual secular forum, yeah. uh, and and in that regard, we we think even you know uh, just above two percent um, 
US uh, US rates look look broadly anchored for the next few years um, based on our on your neutral uh, view on the Fed that uh, the Fed is you know maybe gets to two percent or a little bit higher, um, but it's not going to be going much further than that in the the next cycle. So low level of of yields, but uh, pretty well anchored given the the growth outlook and the Fed outlook. I was struck by uh, the probability you placed on the likelihood of a recession here in the next five years, around 70 percent. Walk us through your your thinking, PIMCO's thinking on that. So if you have, um, you know, something like a 20 percent chance of um, recession um, every year in the U.S., given the the kind of the the frequency of uh, post-war recessions, then you can get to that um, kind of number. Now, you need to be careful because we could always be negative based upon expectations of over three to five years of a recession. Uh, but in this case, you know, this is a long uh, expansion we've had um, in the U.S. It's been quite stable the last um, few years. You don't see a lot of imbalances um, and the Fed's not going to be trying to kill this um recession by uh, very aggressive monetary policy. Uh, but over three to five years, um, that kind of longer term time frame, then there's a good chance we get a um, slowdown and recession in the US. And it's easier to get there when you start at 2% growth rather than the, uh, you know, the three or 4% growth that the, the Trump administration has, has, has talked about. So you have this, this secular forum, uh, you meet around the table, Larry Summers is there, Jean-Claude Trichet, Anne-Marie Slaughter, the rest. You move from that to investment strategy, and, and I wonder sort of what conclusions you came to uh, in the second half of, of that meeting. Uh, is the focus still going to be here on, on capital preservation? It is, yes. So so a three to five year outlook, so it doesn't change uh, every year. Um, um, it, it pivots from time to time, but um, similar view. So we see a, an outlook which is pretty stable, um, but we see it as, um, as insecure. There's a lot of challenges um, in the US, in China, in the rest of the world. Um, and then the big thing which has changed over the last year is risk assets have all done um, so well. So so credit, it looks fair, um, but you don't have um, um, any excess risk premium there for that recession risk or uh, other challenges, other other reasons why we might see higher volatility. So preserving capital um, is yeah. always important, but this is an environment when um, preserving capital, we think, is um, a good idea. And then grind out the alpha the relative value positions, the yeah. the boring stuff, which um, which helps us to uh, outperform. What's the danger of high real yields in Asia? You know, cue the Twilight Zone music. You must have young bucks at PIMCO. You have to say, <laughs> be careful out there. <laughs> high real rates in Asia. You want to um, go buy paper in Asia where you get a, a nice coupon, but what's the risk? Well, so when you go to um, the government markets in Asia, the, the, the coupons, the yields aren't that high. Um, when you go to the credit markets, if you're going to go to high yield, um, then you can find some some good opportunities there. But it comes with a health warning, which is you don't have the transparency in terms of the reporting, the regulatory environments that you have in the in the U.S. So you need to be able to do that, um, that deep credit work. So... Um, uh, it's an area we'll, we'll find opportunities. We're actually investing um, in in that area, adding people in that area. Um, but you, you know, if you're investing in Indonesia, you need to know how that works. The shareholders in the company, uh, less transparent markets clearly than you have in the U.S. Quickly here, let me just ask you about trade. We were talking with Gary Huffbauer just a moment ago. How real is that risk here in the last 30 seconds we have with you? Trade risks, I think, are, are real when so stable but insecure is the. The outlook and, and one reason for insecurity is, uh, you know, a less predictable U.S. administration, um, the potential to 
launch aggressive trade actions versus China or versus other places in the world. Um, so this is one of these pivot points, one of these things that we need to guard against. The other big one, of course, um, tightening central bank policy over mm. the coming years. Andrew Balls, great to speak with you. Thank you uh, very much. Andrew Balls, here, Global Fixed Income Chief Investment Officer uh, at PIMCO, joining us from London, where he uh, is based. Valuable perspective there on PIMCO's new global yeah. secular outlook. It, I'll tell you, it's an interesting time. June 1st, where, where did it go? I can't believe it, yeah. yeah i got to start, like, Christmas is upon us. This is Bloomberg. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of A M L dot com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce Fenner and Smith, Incorporated. There's something new from Bloomberg. It's called Lens. Starting right now, you can use the Bloomberg iOS app off your iPhone or iPad or our new Google Chrome extension to read any news story on any website, scan it, and then instantly see the news story's relevant market data from Bloomberg. In addition, see all the bios of the key people mentioned in the story. It's called Lens, and it is just that, a lens into the people and the data of any story you may be reading. Again, Lens brings you the power of Bloomberg's news and data. Download our iOS app or search for the Bloomberg extension at the Chrome store to try Lens out. Learn more at Bloomberg.com slash Lens. Okay, joining us now, the former governor of New Jersey and a force at a different EPA from a different time. What a perfect time to talk to Governor Whitman of New Jersey. Governor, good morning. I, I assume you're not going to be at the Rose Garden today. Frame, uh, <laughs> frame what all of this means for Republicans who are, to be polite, pre-Trump. Uh, well, I think it makes uh, their position actually a lot more tenable, because if you look at every poll, even within the Republican Party, better than 50 percent of Republicans believe that climate change is a real issue, that humans have a role to play, and that we should be doing something about it. So this I don't know. We don't know what his final action is going to be, but yes. clearly he is considering uh, – he doesn't consider climate change to be a major issue. Uh, my approach here is, look, climate change is caused by what we're putting into the air, which is not good stuff. And we have some 200,000 people in this country a year who die from dirty airborne-related causes. So if we just clean the air, A, we'll be doing something for climate change, or B, we'll be protecting human health. What really worries me about what he, the president is talking about is it undercuts our position in the world. We are ceding leadership in this. Others are going to step up and fill the vacuum, and we're going to see many of our companies' trade wars work both ways. And while many companies have already adopted very strong um, guidelines to reduce their carbon emissions, uh, they're still from the – if they're headquartered in the United States, they could be subject to retaliatory trade wars. It's just unnecessary, and it's too bad to fly in the face of something that people have worked so hard on uh, accomplishing, and you have – Almost 200 countries that have signed it. In fact, we would join only North Korea and Nicaragua in being non-signers. What did you learn uh, when you were in Washington, D.C. about long-termism, the difficult of planning for and crafting policy that takes a long-term uh, perspective? It strikes me with climate change policy in particular, you're getting people to buy into 
something that is going to take place maybe not a year from now, two years from now. Yes, it's happening, but it's it's an aggregate that we care about, uh, and it seems like that's that's something difficult that's still to to sell to many Americans. It is. You're absolutely right. It, it's we don't think in long term. We think in short spurts. But that's why if you go back to annual lives lost from dirty air, you can perhaps make a more compelling case for people to understand this. But I would say that frankly, the weather. Um, is something that is already impacting people, and they're getting it, that things are changing. They don't necessarily know why, and we can't say that humans cause all of it or that it's all due to climate change, and certainly the climate has been changing since the Earth was formed. But they're seeing these storms become more frequent, more severe, and that impacts them directly. So there, there are these short-term implications that are beginning to pop up, which is why I think you see so many people say, this is real, and we should be thinking about how we're going to cope. There was a piece uh, by one of our colleagues at Bloomberg BNA a couple of days ago about the uh, the committee on energy, uh, the committee on environment and public works, U.S. Senate Committee on Environment and Public Works. John Barassa, the senator, now in charge of that, and it seems like the focus squarely is on public works and and not on the environment. And I know that's something that you uh, butted up against when you were heading the EPA a, a few years uh, back. Do, do you think that politicians are paying enough attention to environmental issues generally now in Washington D.C.? No, it's kind of sad. I mean, the first piece of environmental legislation since the 1990 Clean Air Act were one that we got through in the very beginning of the Bush administration on reducing the pollution from non-road diesel engines. Since then, there's only been one other, and that's been on toxic chemicals. And uh, actually, this administration is looking for ways to try to roll back some of those um, some of those safeguards that were put in. So we're really not paying the kind of attention we yeah. need to to understand that we can have good, strong economic growth. We've proved that over and yeah. over again um, and still have a clean and green environment. Yeah. Let's come back and talk further very quickly here, Governor. What do oil refiners in New Jersey want? Well, what they'd like to do is they, they want to do some offshore drilling. Uh, that's something that they'd like to see. Also, there are a number of the utilities, don't forget, that have uh, nuclear reactors, and they'd like to see nuclear put on the same par as the other green energy sources so they could keep them going. Governor Wood, let me ask you about the role of business uh, in, in forestalling climate change. Uh, when there were whisperings that the president might withdraw from this agreement, we had a statement from a, from a number of business leaders, a number of executives urging him not uh, to do that. What have we learned about the role, the leadership role that businesses can play? Well, they certainly are just that. Uh, they're playing a leadership role. Uh, what kind of impact they're going to have on the president, I don't know. You have the Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, a former CEO of a major company, going in to say, you've got to stick with this uh, because they believe it, they see it. And many of them, as I mentioned before, have already set aggressive targets. I'm on the board of United Technologies, and they've had aggressive targets for a number of years now to reduce their their greenhouse gas emissions and water usage. It's good business. They're saving money. They're more competitive. They're able to use it as something that stands, sets them aside from competitors. It's, it's been good for them. And you have a whole number of businesses that are willing and able and are already doing that. So we'll see what kind of an influence they have. They certainly have an influence on – they can have an influence on Congress if they will put their money where their, where their efforts are, I mean, where their thoughts are. But um, they're going to do it anyway, and that's the good news for the environment. You've got businesses, you've got utilities, almost every utility, while they may still have coal and they may be investing more in natural gas, they are also investing in renewables. And as I mentioned before, a number of them have nuclear reactors that they'd like to keep going uh, in the interim until you can get the renewables to a place where they're base power. Um, they have states, there are state compacts that have come together. They're going to continue to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions and cities as well. So 
you know, the horse has really left the stable. Uh, it's left the barn, and this is going to happen. What really it troubles me is our position as a world leader and whether who steps into the vacuum, China, clearly mm-hmm. has indicated it will and is looking for that. And Russia is always looking for an opportunity to make inroads. Let me ask you about the the introspection I assume you've done since the presidential election uh, in November. Tom was joking about the quantity of moderate Republicans, New England Republicans, whatever you want to want to call them. There are fewer than there were. Uh, what are you thinking about when it comes to the future of the, the Republican Party? Does party matter less to you now in light of what we saw in November? Well, party has always been, um, it's formed my basis of where I, how I look at issues of the Republican Party, but it has never superseded policy for me, and I don't believe it should, and it hasn't in the past. It, it now is more and more mm-hmm. and has been for the last maybe decade going that way, and that's what we see. I mean, the pre- one thing the president needs to remember, once you're elected, you represent all of the people, uh, not just those who elected you. And frankly, in his case, if you look at the numbers, the, the raw numbers of people yeah. who voted for him, he's a minority president. Uh, we've had these before, but he's clearly a minority president. This is something that's important to his base, and his base is quite small. And the whole, when you look at the whole thing, they're absolutely dead loyal. This is what they want, but he can't just satisfy his base in something that has such huge implications for everyone else, for business, for yeah. people's health. Um, he's got a a lot, and he's got to continue to learn and be willing to, to change where he needs to. Christine Todd Whitman, uh, the former governor of New Jersey, you are 59 and holding, and we thank you for that as being a, a good example for those of us timeless. Greg Villiers, uh, uh, Governor Whitman, writes this morning on those aged and 70, which includes in 2020, Bernie Sanders, 79, Senator Warren, 71, Secretary Clinton, 73, the president, 74, and, of course, Joe Biden, thinking of running, supposedly, would be 78. How did we get here? What did you call it, David? What was that fancy Septuagenarian. Governor Whitman and I wouldn't know that. No, Septu- of course, <laughs> yeah, yes, right. right. Okay. Don't I wish. How did we get to be like the Chinese where everybody's a fossil? Well, the problem is you see so many young people who, uh, particularly this millennium generation, something that's fascinated me, they really want to make a difference in the world. They really believe in making the world a better place. They want nothing to do with politics. Yeah. Uh-huh. Nothing, because it's gotten so rough, it's so expensive, so nasty. Um, it's hard to maintain a, a dignity when you've got the Internet the way it is. People can put up anything they want about you, and by the time you get around to seeing it or to, to swat it down, it's already gone viral. Um, it, it's a tough business, and they feel that there are other ways they can make a difference. The problem is that if you're really going to make a lasting difference, you you have to get involved in, in government and policy because that's the way you make the final lasting difference. Very quickly here, we've seen a lot of uh, business executives going to the White House to bend the ear of the, the president. We've seen uh, that happen at the G7 last week, world leaders uh, trying to tell him what they think about uh, about climate change. How about you? How about others like you uh, who are traditional Republicans? Do you feel like you have a conduit to communicate with this White House? Uh, through the press. That's the only way, um, through the press and tweets and that kind of thing. Um, he apparently looks at that a lot, cares about that a lot, but um, I certainly don't have an entree to the White House, per no. se. Governor, thank you so much. Christine Todd Whitman, uh, she will not be at the Rose Garden Day, I don't, <laughs> I don't believe. Stephen Cohen. He's the director of the Earth Institute at Columbia University and the Interdisciplinary Center 
Dr. Cohen, great to have you you with us today. We've talked a lot about what this means for American leadership uh, in the world. Let's talk about the deal in and of itself, sort of the difference that it, it stands to make. Uh, what, what could be the, the, the environmental consequence here if the U.S. were to withdraw from it? Well, uh, first, the, even if the U.S. withdraws from Paris, uh, the Supreme Court has already declared greenhouse gases a dangerous air pollutant. And uh, even if they withdraw the Clean Power Plan, EPA still has to issue a regulation to reduce greenhouse gases. Uh, California and New York have already recommitted to uh, meeting the Paris targets, probably exceeding them. And uh, I think that uh, there will be reductions in greenhouse gases no matter what happens uh, today or whenever with uh, the president. If the, if the Paris Accord is about communities and localities, why is it so dominantly discussed by a federal official? How did we get to where federal officials are discussing what I'm told is a local accord? Well, because the federal government makes foreign policy. The cities don't do that. Now, in a global economy where cities, in fact, and states uh, interact with cities and states all over the world, uh, it's not quite the same way it was when we, when we developed the Constitution. But we still only have one foreign policy in America, and that, you know, I think is correct. When, when, when you look at the, the deal in and of itself, again, I, I keep returning to that, what does it call for? What's, what's the burden so much as it is one here on the U.S.? Well, there, it's actually, there is nothing uh, mandatory in the agreement. It's a set of targets, and what's mandatory is reporting where you are with your greenhouse gases. So there's no actions required. In fact, as I said, the Clean Air Act, uh, uh, which, has, which uh, mandates that greenhouse gases be reduced under the Supreme Court decision during the George W. Bush administration, uh, is much more directive than the treaty is. And so I, I think that we're going to see reductions in greenhouse gases irrespective of Paris. Does it, does it change the – has it done anything to incentivize a change to the energy makeup in, in, this, in this country? In other words, you have these targets. Has that, has that fundamentally changed how we approach energy in the U.S.? Well, I think I think that you're beginning to see the changes in the marketplace anyway. Um, first, uh, coal is uh, you know it's it's hard to get out of the ground, uh, even with the mountaintop removal. It it uh, it's very destructive of the environment. Natural gas, even with fracking, is still uh, has a lower environmental impact. So, first stage is we're moving from. Uh, heavily polluting coal to less polluting natural gas. But the other thing that's going to happen, and we're seeing this also, is renewable energy is going to continue to get less and less expensive. As the technology gets better, the source fuel is free. It's the sun. So it's going to act the same way Moore's Law did with computing. You're going to see the price going down and down and down. It's already price competitive uh, to a large degree with fossil fuels. As the infrastructure builds up, as the technology builds up, uh, fossil fuels will be driven from the market by renewables. And I think we're at the beginning of that right now. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.
brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated.